Welcome to another episode of Undisciplined, a collaborative podcast between the African and African American Studies program at the University of Arkansas and KUAF. The podcast provides a holistic understanding of complex issues that affect our interconnected world. Taking the interdisciplinary approach of African and African American Studies to the classroom, into the community, onto the airwaves, and beyond. I am your host, Dr. Karee Banton, and for this fifth season, I have a new co-host. Nenebi Tony. Now let's get into it. We have been doing quite a lot in season five, and we are grateful to have today's episode. Uh, you know, it's on a really topical issue, and I'm so happy that uh, we have this guest in studio today who we've been trying to get for quite, she's hot commodity, <laughs> okay? Uh and, and especially so that given that, you know, election is coming up and these ideas are kind of topical, I think it's very important that these ideas have kind of breached the walls of academia and her ideas will, you know, get to circulate even more than they have. She's everywhere on everybody's newscasts and podcasts and radio and TV and Washington Post and everything. But she discusses what I think has been one of the most, or some of the most controversial uh, topics uh, in our current politics. I know that I have gotten into arguments on Twitter and Facebook on these issues, uh, and I'm sure perhaps everyone here has, right? Um, I'm talking about uh, our guest today is doc no other than Dr. Angie Maxwell. She is the director of the Diane Blair Center of Southern Politics and Society. She's an associate professor of political science. She holds the Diane Blair Endowed Professorship in Southern Studies here at the University of Arkansas. Uh, she actually studied here at the University of Arkansas, I just learned recently, and did her PhD in American Studies at the University of Texas. Right, and you can find her, as I said earlier, widely circulated hot commodity <laughs> in Slate on MSNBC in the cycle, um, in the Arkansas Traveler, right, writing about the South, writing about the politics of whiteness, writing about feminism, writing about perhaps <laughs> one of the most critical topics, the Long Southern Strategy. So today we are very grateful to have her on on discipline because I cannot think of an area or areas of interest that is more on discipline than what she covers. So today we're going to, you know, talk to Dr. Maxwell about these kinds of things. Right. So Dr. Maxwell, welcome to Undisciplined. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about all of this. <laughs> With you, particularly my colleague. All right, wonderful. And, of course, with uh, our co-host, Nene B. Welcome, Dr. Maxwell. Thank you. And Dr. Banting, have anybody talked to you about the way you laugh? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I've, I've been told that many times. I have my dad's laugh. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes when you laugh, I have to... Pay attention to way. Is she laughing for real? Or <laughs> <laughs> I have a very funny laugh. Yeah. It's been, it's uh, one of my most unique features. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes when you laugh, you're like, wait, is that a real laugh or is it a fake laugh? No, <laughs> yeah. it's never fake. And then you laugh like <laughs> Kanye sometimes. You laugh for three seconds and then you stop <laughs> laughing. <laughs> oh boy, but. You know, this is obviously no laughing matter. I've yeah, lost friends. I mean, you I've have to laugh or you'll cry. <laughs> exactly. Right? I mean, you do. I've, 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 I think I've lost friends over, you know, discussing these kinds of things, uh, Dr. Maxwell. Um, lots of people do not understand <laughs> the Southern strategy. They do right? not. <laughs> they do not. I've had people, obviously, many of them, you know, friends that are like, oh, it was the Republicans who ended slavery, the party of Lincoln, you know. Um, academics have contrived this <laughs> foolishness 
about Southern strategy, strategy when it was us and we're still the same party. What is the Southern strategy, mm-hmm. you know, and how do you define it and what should people know about it? Well, it's first of all, it's true that the Republicans are the party that enslaved. Of course. Of course. <laughs> right? Um, but parties are made of people and they change over time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, both things can be true simultaneously. Yes. Right? But basically, this, the Southern strategy that we kind of knew or understood the common wisdom, you know, which we expand upon um, in the long Southern strategy is the story of how in the 1960s, after the Civil Rights Act and um, in anticipation of the Voting Rights Act, that the Republican Party, strategists within the Republican Party, mm-hmm. you know, decide to try to um, elevate the conservative wing of their party by reaching out towards kind of disaffected white Southerners that are upset about these civil rights changes and lean into that you know, resentment and frustration and, you know, boom, turn the South red, right? That's the story. Mm -hmm. But that's, like, very incomplete, to say the least. So what actually happens is that, you know, yes, a lot of the southern states flip towards Richard Nixon right after the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, but... The South goes back to blue under when Jimmy Carter runs in 76, mm-hmm. when 10 of 11 Southern states return to blue. And Republican strategists have kind of a, you know, debrief like we always do after elections when your party loses mm-hmm. and try to figure out how do they, do they give that idea up of making these inroads in the South or do they double down? What do they do? Because what you have to understand first is that the Southern states were such a serious voting block um, in the Electoral College that if you don't break up that block, your path mm-hmm. to 270 electors is really limited. Right. So you've got to pick some of them off. You just yeah. have to. Mm-hmm. And this is coming after, you know, Republicans had lost four election cycles to FDR, another one to Truman. And then maybe this little brief period in the 50s where they did have success with Eisenhower, but he was a he was very much kind of a nationalized candidate. Both parties wanted the, him to run under their label. So they've had, I mean, imagine. So Eisenhower was a partisan person? I mean, he was a nonpartisan person, right? He's a military, you know, person after the war. He's courted by both parties to run for them. So Republicans haven't had one of their own win at that point in seven cycles, right? right? So they are really desperate, and they have a faction in the party. They have a Rockefeller Republicans, which are very much pro-civil rights for what that meant in the 50s, right? Um, East Coast, West Coast, somewhat elite, um, again, very moderate, and that, that wing controlled the party for a long time, and there's a conservative faction that is primarily anti-communism, anti-union. It's not in the South, yeah. right? It's most it's outside of the South, and it's growing. But it it knows that it can't really compete within its own party mm-hmm. unless it brings some other people in. And so it tries to make some strange bedfellows, and it does so reaching out to some of these, you know, disaffected white Southerners. But it it is very much a top-down strategy these strategists within that community trying to figure out how to build a conservative kind of coalition so they reach out on after civil rights act then when carter wins the south back to the democrats they look for other cleavages in the community and this is this. did carter win because he was from the south or i mean Yes. Okay. I mean, Carter does, but also because people still, they voted for Nixon. These white Southerners, they voted for Nixon, but they remain Democrats. They didn't okay. change their party. There's a lag. Um, because you didn't have the infrastructure of Republican parties at the state level. Mm-hmm. So you might have, like, voted for a Republican presidential candidate, 
but you didn't like become a Republican because okay. there well, wasn't much of a party. They were drawn to Nixon. They were well, they were drawn to Nixon because Nixon leaned hard into um, kind of a coded language that yeah, the played towards Atwater. the anti, yeah. you know, civil rights, yeah. um, and anti integration, mm-hmm. you know, segregationist kind of impulse. Yes. Right. So you got a lot of those followers, but then. After Carter wins, there is an effort to say, what else can we do? Like, how else can we reach these folks? And Ronald Reagan's team polls um, 40,000 American women um, and divides them into, like, 64 categories. He gives them names like Nancy's, Betty's, Helen's, types, archetypes. And they figure out that... 64 is a lot. (laughs) Yeah, who they need to win are these Southern white women... That's who they need to win back. And those women had been come into politics and been politicized to stop the Equal Rights Amendment. Mm. Um, they were kind of the anti-feminist. They had been, um, it had been pitched to them that the Equal Rights Amendment would mean that women had to work, had to put their children in government daycare, would be on the front lines of battle. So a very extremist vision is what, Um, was portrayed to these women, and they got involved politically in the 70s to help kill the ERA. Mm -hmm. And those women um, are exactly who Reagan needed to the Republican Party drops the ERA from its platform in 1980. For the first time in 40 years, it was the first party to have it in their platform. Mm -hmm. Um, And these Southern white women vote in droves and help Reagan win the South back. So that's also part of the Southern strategy. Fast, uh, you know, fast forward to Bill Clinton wins five of the Southern states back and makes inroads in other ones. And Republicans, once again, the strategists are saying, how do we, you know, make sure that these gains are not eroded mm-hmm. um, and that the South doesn't fall back to Demo- into a Democratic stronghold? And that's when we see the effort to reach to. Um, evangelicals mm-hmm. in a very you know systemic way. It's not that evangelicals hadn't been politicized before because they had, mm-hmm. but it is a new effort to reach um, reach them across a cross denominational Catholic, Mormon, mm-hmm. Southern Baptist, all of these groups. We see that you know state constitutional amendments banning gay marriage, things like that are put on the ballot to drive people to the polls that maybe saw themselves as concerned, not concerned with worldly affairs because they were concerned with their spiritual endeavors. Um, and that gives us kind of that third tenet of the long Southern strategy. So you'd say the three are the three. white women. The three are um, kind of racial resentment, racial resentment, mm-hmm. anti-feminism, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yeah, Christian nationalism is what it ends up becoming. Mm-hmm. And that uh, that combo is not exclusive to the South, of course. Mm-hmm. Those kind of things don't have regional boundaries, so mm-hmm. to speak. But the concentration... is international beyond the U.S. at some point. Absolutely. But the concentration of people who hold those ideas is denser in the South, and it's dense enough to affect election outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not that, so the Republican Party, to reach those folks, kind of remakes itself in that Southern image, and in doing so, it rebrands the party nationally. Mm -hmm. Um, And people kind of sort themselves accordingly over time. Mm -hmm. So if you look back and you ask questions that, that you know, political scientists measure on racial resentment and anti-feminism and all these things, you used to see a very even number between the parties in the 1950s, mm-hmm. right? So, and now that has shifted. It yeah. is, you know, it's not that all Republicans express some kind of modern sexism. It's that, you know, 60% do. Yeah. Right. Which means it has controlling interest in the party. Forty yeah. percent don't, which is millions of people in this country. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's enough to control outcomes. Yes. Right now. Uh, so 
That is extremely fascinating, and I'm sure perhaps even more so for you <laughs> as a person, a daughter of the South. Yep. And I'm thinking about the inspiration to write such a book growing up in the South. Sure. You know, your identity as a person, what inspires you, and having to account for your own personal background, you know, how does that feed into you writing such an academic and discussing and going back home, girl? Yeah. <laughs> how do you go well, <laughs> the thing is, is, you know, it's, it's a kind of a combination of two things. One, in political science where I kind of ended up landing, there are very few women mm-hmm. who work on Southern politics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I noticed... Um, when political scientists that work on Southern politics used to gather at the Citadel every couple of years, <laughs> and they would put up their models, right, their statistical models, and gender would never be significant, so they wouldn't really talk about it because oh, wow. we tend to talk about the variables that are significant. Yeah. But it's the fact that it's not significant, which means that white women were as conservative as white men, mm-hmm. that to me was part of the story, right? So I'm digging into what do we know about Southern white women and their voting and realizing there's nothing. There's no scholarship on it. It's a giant hole in the field. We don't have a lot of records. Polling data has, you know, tiny fractions of women, and there's an assumption when the data is weighted by pollsters that white women act the same across the country. And we know that, for example, in 2016, like, Secretary Clinton won white women by four points outside of the South, and in the South she lost by 30 Wow. So there are, you know, I'm sure there's 64 camps of white women, but there are two huge camps, and you find that. um, Does this have to do with education? It has to do with, well, this is what people like. This is what I kind of can't get across that I'm still trying to kind of this break is the through difficult with the thing information. To, yes. <laughs> is because it is very obvious if you study the equal rights, you know, amendment and uh-huh. its failure that, you know, the women that killed that. Uh-huh. But because when movements fail, we tend not to talk about them. Right. Yeah. We've lost a lot of that history. Yes. And what we don't study failed things. We don't there's lessons in that. There are so many lessons in that. <laughs> yeah. And why for a lot of those women, you know, um, you know, Jim Crow didn't just suppress the votes of African Americans in the South. A lot of times things like poll taxes and stuff also suppress the votes of women because mm. No family was going to, they're not going to pay for two people. Who can guess how many jelly beans are in a jar? Right? They're I not going to pay. Come on, I don't know. For both people to vote, <laughs> unless it was absolutely necessary. But when you've got one party politics and solid democratic control and all of that, so we don't know how many women were participating. The, you know, the, even women's suffrage didn't pass in most southern states. It only passed in Arkansas and Texas and in Tennessee by one vote, right? And then they rescinded it later. So we don't have, like, that same level of activism. We don't have those same records and history. And so I just started thinking about, you know, how did Southern white women get involved in politics and, like, what angle did they come at into it and the Equal Rights Movement, the Equal Rights Amendment um, and the Movement for Ratification or To Kill It is really when a whole generation of women kind of got involved. Undiscipline will be back after this commercial break. I'm Denisha Simpson. And I'm Joy McGowan. And, and we, we are, are the, the co-hosts to, to the, the Resilient Black, black Women podcast. podcast. Our podcast is all about demystifying mental health for black women, women of color, and women everywhere. You can learn more about our work with our nonprofit and our podcast by visiting Resilient Black Women. You can also listen to our podcast at KUAF.com or subscribe to our podcast on any streaming platform. Welcome back. And that to me, you know, there'd been a lot written about racial resentment and the kind of traditional definition of the Southern strategy, and there'd been a lot written about religion mm-hmm. and politics, but there was a bridge in the middle. And that was over the issue 
of gender roles mm-hmm. in this country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people thought I was nuts when I first, but, you know, started pitching this idea. But then when you watched the elections unfold in 2016 and 2020, and you see the efforts to restrict women's reproductive freedom, you know, all of those things, you realize that that component has been there, you know, all along and not talked about. And in some ways, it's what makes the whole effort to reach the religious right possible because it was the effort to kill the Equal Rights Amendment that bridged the first gap between Catholics, Mormons, and the Southern Baptists. What is the Mm -hmm. argument there? The Equal Rights Amendment, Mm -hmm. trying to make you know, have this kind of a, you know, equality, right. um, <clears throat> have this kind of equal um, among all citizens in the United States, you know, regardless of their sex and, well, and all it, of that. You know, yeah. it, this constitutional amendment was backed by both parties. It passed Congress, both the House and the Senate, upwards of 90 percent of the vote. It passed, it was ratified in 30 states in one year. It was a done deal, right? Mm-hmm. It was on track. Mm-hmm. And then, an anti-ERA movement headed up by Phyllis Schlafly, a woman out of you know St. Louis who was in that conservative Republican wing mm-hmm. and very influential in it, starts talking about you know traditional gender roles. Now she had her own agenda. This gave her prominence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of the Republican men didn't want to argue against the ERA. They don't want to be the guy out there doing that. Yeah. But if they can yeah. get a it's woman to, a do it, to yeah. do it, yeah. If you can mind. get a black person to do some anti-black talking points, yeah. it sells. If you, can, you can, get can get a woman, woman to, to talk about why, <laughs> why feminism is I mean, not that, So, so <laughs> for her personally, it shot her up into the political upper prominence. echelon. Yes, yes, political prominence. Almost to the point she wants a cabinet position under Reagan. He doesn't give it to her, but mm-hmm. she's mad about it. But she you know, became that big of a deal and that prominent. And she builds a bridge. She was Catholic, and Mm -hmm. she builds a bridge with the Southern Baptist Convention um, and the the biggest denomination in the region. So she's using traditional gender roles to be like, look, I don't want to work. I am tired. I am looking at these She's using it to say, um, you it's know, what is our thought. vision of gender, right? right? Mm-hmm. It's it's the evangelicals' complementarian kind of vision, which is, you know, women and men have each different roles that complement each other, mm-hmm. right? And not, and she's casting, I mean, she's casting feminism mm-hmm. as one specific set of choices and lifestyles. Exactly whereas that. it was not. The Equal Rights Amendment. I think Amendment, there was something of, about Women being drafted to be in the oh, military yes. as well. Oh, right? yes. women. Not. And see, there are real debates that needed to happen about the Equal Rights Amendment like that. That's mm-hmm. a serious debate that's worth discussing. But that's not what was put out. What was put out is like, your husband's going to be able to divorce you and he will not have to pay child support. You will have to put the babies in government daycare. All these, te- you know, of course. terrifying things that, to be honest, a lot of these white women in the South, I mean, it's not like there was a child care industry that a lot of these women, you know, <laughs> knew about or had access to. And, you know, it just was not the world they were raised to, yeah, to live in. And and so it's destabilizing for yeah, a lot of them. It's a world they can't imagine, and it's scare tactics. But that, we have yeah. to think about, I guess, in this moment, how, again, gender... Uh, in the South operated and who belonged in what sphere. The public sphere belongs to the men. The domestic sphere belongs to the women. This kind of a construction as to who belongs where. Well, to go real deep, right? (laughs) I mean, Southern, this kind of cult, it's called the cult of Southern white womanhood. This culture is, hat is, you know, built to justify, you know, racial violence, Mm -hmm. right? It, they're they're built together in antebellum times. Like in order to be a white male who participates in you know human bondage and slavery, you have to self-justify that it is somehow a noble cause, yeah, right? To protect to the protect women. The women. Mm-hmm. So it, they grow up side by side, right? These race and gender, mm-hmm. um, and that culture. Of, for Southern white women of being kind of the spiritual head of the family, but 
only confined to the home and delicate, frail, fragile, mm-hmm. you know, needing to be protected, yes. seen and not heard, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Responsible for carrying on the bloodline. That's right. You know. And then, and then institutions are created. And that mm-hmm. it enables the, mm-hmm. the masculine violence because then totally, you have to then right? go and protect these frail, and you see a lot of that tied to lynchings. 100%. Yeah. You even have a group of women small group that come out going, quit lynching people in our names. Like, they're so frustrated with it. So there were people that saw through it. But overall, institutions get created to whether it was finishing schools, sororities, whatever, Mm -hmm. to continue pageants, to continue to, (laughs) you know, keep women as this kind of ornamental you know, thing to be admired, but not to really be heard. And then a social structure pops up that's so complicated about, um, you know, the the culture of kind of the thank you notes and, and, and social graces and manner, like in who introduces whom to what, and that whole kind of world, and it becomes so complicated um, because it's distracting. It has to do something with all the energy. And these women have to have a place to put their minds, right? And mm-hmm. so they grow up in it knowing, having no idea that it's connected to this long history, mm-hmm. right? Um, and politics is seen as something that's kind of ugly and maybe you're going to offend people, right? And the improper it's against, morals yeah, it's and men the lie. It's dirty. Kind of thing, and it's men's world. And you know, you don't want to exert you yourself. Don't talk about it it goes the against the table. principles of studied hospitality. That's right. That's right. That's right. And so that culture, um, you know, really just got kind of tapped into as a way to kind of kill the ERA because it says that world is going to be destroyed, right? Now, feminism and the equal rights movement was about choice, right? Mm-hmm. Choice. If you want to, choose what you want. Exactly. You want to stay at home, be at home. Correct. If you want to work, be at work. But, but it's One thing I've noticed about choice is that you want to make a choice, but you also don't want to feel bad about your choice. That's right. <laughs> so if there is a choice of you having to work and you choose not to, then yes, you're not Yes, then there's going to be some moral yes. you know, condemnation. <laughs> so what happens is that the anti-ERA movement frames feminism as the choice to work they frame feminists as man-hating women who do not want to be mothers, women who use abortion as birth control, and lesbians. Mm. Like that's the extreme portrayal that lumps right. all of all of those characteristics in. And abortion is pulled into there in order to win over the Southern Baptists. And How does bridge. abortion get in? Because that's same the because Roe. Part. I mean, it's you know Roe's decided right when the ERA is you know being debated, and yeah. so it was really easy to cast the villain if you are wanting to um you know kill the era to cast feminists as just wanting to be to be men to be in men's worlds to not want to be mothers to look down on women who that want juxtaposition to, say, just, just makes works. that point <laughs> yeah. it just works right and so then you have these women who you know they feel like in order to be a good woman mm-hmm. right then they've got to reject that Yes. That's what their culture tells them, right? Yeah. And then they and, and and they feel insulted by it, and rightly so. Mm-hmm. I mean, if that's what you're being told, if that's I'd the dominant narrative too. coming out, and that was the dominant narrative, and the feminists that had organized the ERA, it just came out of the blue for them, like because, like I said, it was sailing through. Mm-hmm. Nobody and 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 it's not that they didn't take it seriously; they did. It's just that movements don't happen that fast, and this one did. And it really, you know, worked in the South. So, you know, the anti-ERA movement is successful in killing, you know, um, the ERA, and especially when it becomes nationalized. So the the feminists have a convention in 1977 in Houston, the National Women's Convention, and it's bipartisan. It's literally every first living first lady, Coretta Scott King, all of these women there. Um, the Gloria Steinem's, the Betty Friedan's, all these state leaders, too. Diane Blair was there. Um, and Phyllis Schlafly hosts a counter convention. 
Um, and all of these Southern white women on church buses and stuff go to <laughs> okay. this counter convention, and the slogan of it is family values. Wow. And the Republican national strategists know this. Of and course. they, they co opt it. Yes. Yeah. Because it works. Yes. Yeah. There's something well, about family I values. Know, I didn't know how family values got into the That's it. Republican mix, but I want yeah. to ask you this. How did the Democrats re- react to the sudden strategy mm-hmm. from the first wave of it till now? Do you think that they re- reacted well to it? Oh, God, please. Well, <laughs> they, so. <clears throat> Like I said, both parties kind of shared in if you look at their platforms in the 50s, they're almost hard to distinguish from each other on a lot of these things. Right. But when LBJ signs the Civil Rights Act and then says he'll push and sign the Voting Rights Act, mm-hmm. that just changes the composition of the Democratic Party cuz once it's through African Americans in the South register in record numbers and vote, and they're going with the Democrats, right? Mm-hmm. So just as the Republican Party is trying to tap into that resentment, simultaneously... The Democrats have tapped into African-American yeah. right. votes. Right, and mm-hmm. so it, it, makes it, it makes it even easier, easier. to kind of yeah. cast that these are going in different direction directions, right? Now, the problem is, is for Southern Democrats that are coming up like the Priors and the Bumpers and the Bill Clintons of the world in Arkansas is that they're trying to hold on to both things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They created a third path? <laughs> they're trying to cut a middle because yeah. <laughs> they got all these white conservatives that you know, are upset about these changes mm-hmm. that are in the Democrat Party, but then now they've got all these African Americans that are coming into the Democrat Party because of what it means nationally. Yeah. Right. And they're trying to hold together because there's no Republican Party in some of these states, or it's like, you know, it barely exists. You mean infrastructure. Mm. And they're building, so they're trying to hold it together. Now, one of the things that happens in Arkansas is the Republican Party has started here and becomes prominent here, the modern version, by Winthrop Rockefeller. He's one of the Rockefeller brothers from that kind of pro-civil rights wing of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so when he comes... In the 60s to Arkansas and kind of starts up that party and becomes governor, he doesn't, you know, all of these segregationists don't flee and go to the Republican Party here in this state Mm -hmm. because that's not what he's selling, right? And so that's one of the reasons it holds together longer in Arkansas Uh and it doesn't really flip until later, right? When I was, I've been trying, I've been studying the history of Arkansas since I've been here, right? And it's a very interesting state because I remember I read about the Farmers Party, which was a biracial mm-hmm. union between white and black farmers. Mm-hmm. So at what point did they realize that black and white poor Af- people in Arkansas shouldn't be in the same party? Well, you know, that is a fight in every southern state to a degree, which is, you know, after... Reconstruction, when white elites get back in power, one of the things they're most worried about is class alliances putting them out of power because there's a whole lot more poor people than there are people of means in an agricultural plantation economy and a sharecropping economy that comes afterwards. And so there were efforts all the time to make sure that there would not be some kind of interracial cooperation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in Arkansas, because the black population was not, was high but not high enough to be a threat Mm -hmm. to election outcomes like it was in Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, they kind of didn't crack down on interracial cooperation, yeah. populism of the early 20th century. It's mm-hmm. one of the reasons Arkansas ends up with like a ballot, you know, initiative and referendum process, the only Southern state that has that, where the people can put something on a ballot, mm-hmm. is because there's an in, kind of an independent streak to the state and there wasn't, um, there wasn't a large enough black population to threaten yeah. kind of white you know, white dominance. The numerical force wasn't there. Yes, it wasn't there. And so there's like, oh, well, you know, we'll let the farmers, you know, kind of work together a little bit on this. They weren't threatened by it. Mm -hmm. Um, If When they do get threatened by it, they shut it down. So when they get threatened by labor unions, we we become right to work 
you know, those kind of things. They will when they have to. Yeah. But it just wasn't as immediate as it would be when you had those kind of coalitions that were forming in other states where yeah. the numbers were much higher and much bigger, yeah. right? And then Northwest Arkansas, you know, is one of those kind of border areas in the South that, you know, there were lots of people that voted, you know, to go with the union, you know? I mean, there were places that were kind of split. Right. Um, there were places, pockets where there was no slavery, right? So that kind of thing um, made the state uh, different than Mississippi, yeah, right? Okay, different than in it. Alabama, because yeah. it's got a little bit of that yeah. border region, right? Um, but those combinations kind of matter, right? The details of that geography yes. and economy and how it's structured and population numbers, all of that, you know, it doesn't change the core issues, but how serious they are and what kind of response would shut them down, the need to, co- like, you know, Fayetteville High School. I mean, Fayetteville integrates mm-hmm. right after Brown. No problem. Yeah. Right. It's because it's like four students. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know that. So yeah. does that mean that people were super enlightened up here? I mean, maybe. But, like, you really can't the judge numbers it are negligible. compared to reactions in other cities. How does that compare to your home state of Louisiana? Oh, well, Louisiana on a, a beat. Well, Louisiana is a... <laughs> Is a mix, right? You've got North Louisiana, which is Southern Baptist, you know, predominantly white Protestant. You've got New Orleans kind of area, which is was Chocolate City at one point, and was and was the largest, you know, population of free people of color people yes. that had means uh-huh. and that had generational and wealth. And they had that, that, that long history of they, fighting of of the KKK pushing them and them push. In mm-hmm. fact, whatever strategy that they had done. Um, you know, had helped uh, what would, you know, we'd see with the court cases in Brown versus Board of Education because it was those New Orleans Creole mixed race people, mm-hmm. Plessy versus Ferguson. And they were free, yeah. right? Uh-huh. For, so they, they, they were able to build wealth, build businesses. They were able to fund challenges mm-hmm. legally to have people who had reached statuses of being lawyers that served in political office, I mean, this is why when Reconstruction happens and all the white Confederates are disenfranchised and barred from holding office, why you see such, you know, um, black political dominance in Louisiana because there were people yes. who were ready right. to go. To step into because those Because they had um, a highly educated and a... And motivated. ...community <laughs> of means that had always been free, Exactly. Right? So you have that contingency. You've always had that kind of an interracial cooperation there. Then you've got all white, northern Protestant, lots of KKK communities and groups. And then you've got Cajun, Louisiana, which is kind of southwest, Mm -hmm. which were poor, French-speaking, very, very mixed uh, ethnicities and race, Mm -hmm. Spanish, Native American, African American, French, you know, mm-hmm. um, of, and they were kind of their own thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so anyone that can balancing those three <laughs> is is not easy to do, yeah. and it requires you know Northern white, kind of um, more conservative Louisiana Protestant, isn't big enough to control the other two. They've got to work mm-hmm. with Catholics yeah. and Cajuns, or they've got to work with you know, African-Americans in the New Orleans area. And so it just creates this weird hybrid in Louisiana, um, and it tends to bounce around. Yeah, then now the governor is uh, Democrat. Yep. And then the Senate are Republicans. Yep, (laughs) they absolutely are. And um, you see that in Louisiana, a back and forth a little bit more. Um, It's a hard state to compare to anywhere else. But the national labels... This is the big thing, is that, and this is what this is why it's the long southern strategy is very much a top down kind of thing, is because the state was so the, uh, the southern states were so dominated by the Democrat Party and you just had factions within the Democrat Party. The label Democrat meant a million things to mil- mm-hmm. different groups, right. right? Everybody's operating underneath it, right? So it's kind of it's kind of meaningless. Um, it's just an umbrella and the factions and how they fight it out in the primaries are really the whole, the whole thing. Right. 
for, for a lot of its history. So when the Republican Party nationally starts to kind of rebrand and pits itself against Democrats on some of these core value issues, now local Democrats in the South have to reconcile that national label that's being developed for yeah. them with their home label. Uh-huh. And that's not easy to do, yeah. right? That's not easy to do because they don't match in uh-huh. a lot of cases. You know, what what Democrats of Southern White North Louisiana in the 60s, what, they, what that meant to them is not where the National Democratic Party label is going, right, as the Republicans define themselves in opposition to it. It's just a matter of how far does it go before those people change their label. Right. I wanted to ask you that in relation to the issue of evangelicals, right? Yep. How when the national how did the National Democratic Party react to evangelicals becoming Republican? Mm-hmm. And how did the Southern Democrats react to it? And did they ever come to a consensus on how to deal with that? Because I remember that was around I, I am very conversant with the evangelical movement because in Ghana, if you watch Christian <laughs> television, it's just American evangelicals. Oh, yeah. Oh, Lord. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. I was going to ask about the extension of this Southern strategy overseas. Yeah. Oh, we Lord. Can, yes. Well, so, they, you know, <clears throat> what happens, um, honestly, in this country in, like, the 1920s, um, in the fights over things like evolution, the teaching of evolution and all of that, is that fundamentalism, that kind of vision of evangelical fundamentalism really tries to control the public sphere, right, Mm -hmm. through majoritarianism, and it fails. And so what happens is, you know, folks that didn't like that were celebrating, oh, fundamentalism and evangelicalism is on its way out. It didn't die. It went underground. Mm -hmm. And we see in the 30s and 40s and 50s, evangelicals, instead of trying to control the public sphere, create a separate subculture, kind of subworld from Christian evangelical colleges and universities, private schools, mm-hmm. bookstores, television stations, radio stations, kind of their own subculture. And then you have... And they stay a little bit out of politics. Right. Right? So, they don't say much. They're concerned with worldly affairs, and then the, the governing structure within their denomination and their church becomes kind of the outlet for that organizing. It's very much kind of a separated space. But... Issues related to communism in the 50s, anti-communism, and then um, in the 70s, really, when we start dealing with challenges to school prayer, we start dealing with, you know, abortion, equal rights. You see evangelicals and um, starting to say, we're going to have to plug in here, right, mm-hmm. instead of Politics is something that's a worldly concern that we do not get involved with. Right. We are going to have to get involved, right, um, because these values issues we don't like and stuff are changing. And then, of course, strategists pour gasoline on that yes, and say, absolutely. And then, you know, 1979, so same time as the ERA is being, you know, beat up and about to die and Reagan is coming to power and they're trying to figure out how to win the South back from Jimmy Carter. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention is taken over by fundamentalists. Mm-hmm. So they launch a plan and they execute it at the 1979 convention to have a fundamentalist elected as president of the SBC and to have fundamentalists appointed to, they have something called the Committee on Committees, which mm-hmm. sounds yeah. like a nightmare, And to get on that committee so that those people over a decade will appoint more fundamentalists to all the other committees, and it will shift that denomination rightward. Mm -hmm. They are successful at that, and that ends up Southern Baptists recodify into their creed the submission of women. Under men, they purge all women from seminary. They are kicked out of the universities in which they are studying. Um, And, you know, Feminism becomes a dirty word, and they then take this hardline extremist stance on abortion, which they did not take prior to that mm-hmm. at all. There was a much more moderate stance if they talked about it at all, right? And so it really is in reaction to the idea that women would challenge men in any kind, in, in the workplace, in the 
you know, in at the pulpit, anything like that, that these fundamentalists crack down. There's a whole generation of people in the Southern Baptist Church that were, you know, kind of kicked out, exiled from it. You're, you know, they didn't tolerate any moderation um, and were devastated by it because Baptist was supposed to be mm-hmm. the one that didn't have that kind of hierarchy, right? It was supposed to be personal relationship, independent. It's not the Catholic Church. It's not the Episcopal. It doesn't answer to kind of have this independent thing. Who are the big names that we're talking about here? Because we know that they're famous Southern Baptists that come to dominate. At that time, well, it's Paige Patterson and Paul Pressler are the Uh two that launched the plan. Uh Uh They have both been in the news in the last several years for, you know, Paige Patterson, who was, you know, removed from being the head of um, one of the major Baptist seminaries because he had encouraged, he had buried some assault charges that, you know, students had, you know, confided in him about being assaulted and didn't investigate those. He had told women who were abused by husbands to stay with those husbands. And then Paul Pressler, who goes on to be a judge and a major Republican Party figure in Texas, is under investigating, being sued for assaulting young boys. But so the Billy Grahams and oh all that of those. comes yeah and that so that comes that comes later so after mm-hmm. after fundamentalists take over the SBC and they kind of lean into this extremist abortion policy and the submission of women um, the inferior nature of women then they are able to kind of build a bridge with some of these other denominations that look at things the same way like Mormons mm-hmm. and Catholics uh-huh. at the time mm-hmm. and uh-huh. it's created and that. That creates this space for a rise of the Christian right and the yeah. moral majority. Yes. Right? They all try to say it starts with Falwell and then it ends up with, you know, going towards Billy Graham and all of those things. But honestly, it's Phyllis Schlafly and the anti ERA that create the space for this to happen. So Phyllis Schlafly, Jerry Falwell, Billy yeah, Graham. All those folks, yes. right? All those folks. But Billy Graham, you know, they and they get politically involved so you know and how did the democrats respond to that was your original question but Mm -hmm. the democrats respond by trying to nominate southern baptists so jimmy carter Uh born again southern baptist bill clinton Uh born again southern baptist and jimmy carter this this is one of the reasons it also pulled back you know so many southern voters and but these evangelical leaders meet with jimmy carter and his team during that first term, and they're like, mm-hmm. we're done with you. <laughs> you're not doing any, you're not what we thought you were going to be at all. They made Jimmy give up his whole peanut farm. I mean, they that. made him give up his <laughs> peanut farm. They they did not. They just, they were shocked that he could be, have certain values yeah, personally. Right. And then not implement them the way it's, they wanted him to. Exactly. So they're like, we're going somewhere else. They support Reagan, right? But then Reagan makes them mad too. Because they're like, you just you just say Bible verses in your speeches. You don't do anything for yeah. us. We're going to run our own person, right? So I'm, um, I'm curious about the Reagan thing because he's still probably maybe now the second most influential. I say the second because I don't think he's still. I don't know if Reagan would be accepted as a Republican now. He yeah, I, I don't, yeah, that's why I say second because I think Trump is not He wouldn't be extreme figure. enough, but he did a lot. I mean. If you look at African American polling of public opinion of African American voters on Reagan while he's serving office, they know what's up. They're like, we don't like him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we know what he's doing on Reagan. He's just he's doing it all colorblindness. Yeah. He's trying to shut down any the wealthier program. queen. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doing all of that. They're, they saw right through the coded language of it, and they didn't like him from day one. And the whole rest of the country did, right? Mm-hmm. So it was very obvious to the hardcore feminists about what Reagan represented, to African-Americans what Reagan represented. The evangelicals think he's on their side, but then they get annoyed that he's not doing enough, mm-hmm. right? So they said, in 88, they're going to run their own guy. And who's that? Um, Pat Robbins. Pat, Pat, Pat Robinson. <laughs> and he can't win a primary. Mm-hmm. And so that's when the evangelical leadership says, okay, here's what we need. We do not care who the person is or their background. 
We just need them to do what we want them to do. Exactly. Period. Yeah, we That's don't care it. if they're godly I don't care or if they're if I don't care what denomination. I don't care if they're divorced three times. Exactly. I do not care. If they're on assault There's charges. There's no purity test on their personal belief because God can deliver through any any person any entity. Yes. And so I've when seen we that narrative so much. There's a whole book called like Chaos. Is it God's Chaos Agent here? Yep. Yeah. So so. The, but but pundits and stuff will question. They'll be, I don't understand why evangelicals can support this person who did this. You did just this answered that this. question for me, too, because you. I was asking, you know, my hard not, Christian people they the are, same They question. are politicos. Yeah. They are voting to get a desired outcome. Right. Mm-hmm. And that shifts. That shift happens when they realize politics is dirty business. And we're not because if they wanted a they wanted the most honestly if they wanted a religious person in office it would have been Jimmy Carter and it'd probably be Joe Biden yes honestly in terms like of Jesus. very yeah very you know public in their faith right but doesn't necessarily mean they want to push Christian I nationalism think. these folks want to push Christian nationalism mm-hmm. their leaders do. The, the people at the top, the lobbyists that are up there in Washington, I'm not saying everyone of that denomination. I'm saying the, the people that are talking to the politicians, which is a very separate thing. And all of this is very top-down. It's very imposed upon by strategists. It's the same people even. So who gets Reagan to announce his candidacy in Mississippi at the county fair? And talk about states' rights. Ronald Reagan, actor and governor of California, why in the world is he launching his presidential campaign in Mississippi mm-hmm. and talking about states' rights? Who is his southern field director? Paul Manafort. <laughs> yep. Young Paul Manafort. Young Paul Manafort. I didn't okay. know he was that old. <laughs> yep. Young Paul Manafort's helping him launch that. Who is... and. Those folks are trained by the Lee Atwater. There's one Lee Atwater, you know. Who makes the ad that runs against Michael Dukakis, you know, the Willie Horton scare tactic ad about, you know, this African-American man who's been let out of prison and is attacking. Mm-hmm. More. Who makes that ad? That's a young Roger Ailes, Fox News, young Roger Stone. Mm-hmm. It's the same people that say play to these worst, worst parts of Innocent, humanity. Yeah, the fear. Play to these. And it will, it will get you the votes you need in the right combinations in the right states to get you the map that you need to get to victory. You you said but, something about hold on one second. Tony. You said something about um, you know Lee Atwater, and mm-hmm. I, I think uh, many of us know these days that famous line that kind of was discovered that kind of like helped to summarize what was going on with the Southern strategy. Uh, you know. And it's very interesting. As a historian, you know, these things are fascinating because you know the step-by-step um, that kind of, or the context that lead to these things, the kinds of things that coalesced and came together to make certain things possible. And people are like, no, Jesus sent it down on a scroll. You know, <laughs> like it was just, it fell out of the sky. But, you know, Lee Water explains this very clearly about how Republicans can win the votes of racists without sounding racist when he said, you start out in 1954 by saying N-word, N-word, N-word. By 1968, you can't say N-word. That hurts you. It backfires. So you start to say stuff like force busing, states' rights, and all that stuff, and you're getting so abstract. But it's code, it's signification, right? No, you're talking about cutting taxes. And all these things you're talking about are totally economic things. And a byproduct of them is what? Blacks get hurt worse than whites, which is what you want, right? We want to cut this. Is much more abstract than even the busing thing. uh, And the hell of a lot more abstract than saying Edward, Edward. So this is how you're kind of, this is what we call dog whistle. This is the dog whistles. But here's the part of it that no one talks about. Mm-hmm. You know why they can't say the N-word anymore in 68? Yeah. You know why? No. Right. Tell us. Because the white women don't like it. Oh. The southern white women don't like how they look during the civil rights movement. Uh-huh. During the civil rights movement, every journalist, starting from 55 after Emmett Till, every major newspaper has somebody on the civil rights beat down in the south. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these southern white women... Are on TV now, looking crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they want their race. If they want their race, if they if they're racist, they want it polite. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to be called out for it. And they don't want 
somebody to be so extreme and so ugly. So they need a way to vote for it and not be called that because they do not like how that makes them look. Mm-hmm. Right? This is a time when um, TV sets are coming into That's individual right. homes. Yeah. You're seeing they, white women with coffins with black want baby to dolls. Do the self-reflection mm-hmm. that all of this is justified because all of that is built on a house of cards, right? Confederacy, <laughs> all of it. It's a house of cards. Yeah. Right? All of it. And, the, and all that self-justification and rationalization of the need for segregation and the rules and what's a good woman, all, all of that, if somebody pokes holes in it, the whole world comes crumbling down. That whole down gentility. To these like you it own slaves comes. too. You were often harsher Correct. in slavery. Correct. You were enforcer of Jim Crow. So that whole Correct. cult of domesticity and all of that kind of stuff yeah. don't Correct. hold water because all of these books are coming out now about white women slaveholders and the cruelty and all. Of, and, you know, it's it's and some when, of that cruelty was there was there was jealousy. The ju- because the I white mean, men are raping the black women and no, uh, you know why wouldn't you be uh, why wouldn't you be jealous? And these white women are put in a put in a put up on a pedestal where they are. Suffocating and mm-hmm. lashing out sometimes. Exactly, right. And then imposing or imposing that world and that dynamic permanently in every way they can because mm-hmm. cha- you know, choice is like kryptonite. Yeah. You know, they don't don't put choice in there because then women are gonna have to think about all of these things and how they're set up, and that is going to be that's destabilizing. When you've built a house of cards that creates your self-identity and concept, you've got to tell yourself all of that to believe you're a good person Mm -hmm. that holds people in human slavery. And you you have to also understand all of what you just explained, too, as to why white women and black women coalitions are so difficult. And why with, there's with all this bombastic side eye of white women? <laughs> yes, you, if that's why this measure, like when we look at intersectionality, yes. it needs to be race and gender, but it also needs to be ha- what do you think of your gender? Because <laughs> if it's white and feminist, it it tracks in terms of political opinions, right? Real closely to African American women, mm-hmm. whether they call themselves feminists or not, right? Mm-hmm. If you are traditional gender roles, not just for yourself, but for everyone, Mm -hmm. white woman, you track. It's like you're a different species. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, it's it's so it's not just being a woman. It is what do you think womanhood should be? Your imaginary. It's your imaginary of what womanhood is has Mm -hmm. to be on a like, you know, a Z planes where you have not just two things that are kind of intersecting, but in a three dimensional way because it is very varied in terms of how people are going to vote and what what percentage of white women you have in a community mm-hmm. that is of each ilk in each camp will determine political coalitions that can be built or not built mm-hmm. right i wanted to ask this and the issue of feminism right i've heard some uh, conservative women or republican women say they identify as feminists but the feminists movement or the leadership of feminist movement don't accept them as feminists because of they are they don't make the choice that they're supposed to be they still want to hold on to their traditional I mean values. the Republican women were part of the equal rights amendment it was they were some of the biggest leaders of it it was a bipartisan effort what i hear oftentimes from republican women who call themselves feminists now is they will it's Sarah Palin it's Palinite feminism <laughs> which is I can do anything I have not faced um, there is no institutional sexism mm-hmm. to say that there is diminishes my accomplishments right it's very similar tracks very similar to denials of structural racism right mm-hmm. um, and you know it's really difficult to call yourself a feminist and not believe that women should have reproductive choices. It's not only it, it's not only white women feminists that does that. It's black male conservative as well, and mm-hmm. probably maybe um, people like Candace Owens or you know black women conservative. Absolutely. But it's that it's to admit that there's structural racism or structural inequalities to diminish. That's right. <laughs> that's right. As if to say like, as if these things can't be. True. I can say I make equal pay. Right. Therefore, but that doesn't mean 
that it is not a problem across all these industries. Like exactly. individual truth and the collective trends can be oppositional and still both be true. Exactly. Right? But there is a very big focus by the Republican Party pushing for, starting with Goldwater in the 60s forward, for individualism. Do not look at the standings in society in kind of a collective way. Have you been racist? Have you been, you know, made to feel this way? Do you think your wife is less than you? Do you think... You don't know what's in my heart, Dr. Maxwell? (laughs) To people, like, look at their individual... Well, I don't have privilege, right? I grew up... Therefore, it doesn't exist, right? And that kind of turning inward and just look at your own individual A very myopic and a very myopic lens. That's right. And we see a long legacy of that um, as if something can... If it's not true for you, then it's, it's it doesn't true. exist in reality, right? Okay. So um, there's that's another kind of offshoot of the effort too. So, Dr. Maxwell, you know, where where do students? What classes are you teaching, or have you taught? Where can students kind of learn these things, or if the public want to come take your class? Oh Lord! <laughs> you know, what classes well, have you taught? I mean, what I do, I. Right now I'm teaching intro to Southern Studies. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a minor in Southern Studies. Great. In the spring I'm teaching um, the South and the Law. So it's Sweet. race, gender, and citizenship and legal document, like how all that gets defined mm-hmm. legally. We do everything from the Japanese internment camps in mm-hmm. Arkansas mm-hmm. to, you know, um, labor strikes and efforts in the textile mills in the South and all this kind of stuff. And then I teach Southern politics and I teach – um, politics and literature of the South, where we read a lot of imaginative literature, which tends to get into these topics way before they trickle into the public arena. But I mean, so you're truly interdisciplinary. I hear law, I, I hear politics, I hear literature, That's how my brain economics. Works. I just cannot. You ask the like question that. just like Black Studies asked the question, yeah. and then you marshal all these different disciplines. Yeah, my 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 professors taught me to ask the question and then walk around and look <laughs> at the question from every single possible angle, because they all inform in different ways mm-hmm. and particularly a crossover between the social sciences and the humanities. Right. You know, I feel like when it's done well, it's fantastic. When it's done badly, it's like the worst stuff you've ever had to read. But the effort is to say let's ask questions in a new way that are measured quantitatively, right? Let's dig below these trends and figure out kind of what's going on in a messy way. Political scientists don't like the messy. <laughs> but they bring a sense of order also to things that we may know as anecdotal or yes. they bring kind of a sense of scale and change over time. So it's a good it's a good merger and my my ultimate effort is so that people understand and rather than just right off the South and kind of condemn it, they understand the forces that created and played into a lot of these divisions, Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of which was very orchestrated by elites Mm -hmm. to play to people's fears Mm -hmm. and to, you know, provide misinformation. The Southern strategy is like a modern-day Bacon's Rebellion. I mean, it is, and it's disinformation. I mean, (laughs) a lot of it was a disinformation campaign, and that has harmed a lot of folks. And what we ultimately want in the region is strong two-party competition. Mm -hmm that, you know, holds politicians accountable on both sides of the aisle, that becomes a real contest of ideas and not just a cult of personality. Right. And that's what's best. If you look at Arkansas, when Winthrop Rockefeller, Republican, comes in, and he's bringing all these ideas, and Democrats are like, oh, my gosh, there's a Republican winning. Yeah. And they've got to now counter and come up with ideas. We get this sweet spot of really good leadership for a while in this state. You know, between the bumpers and the priors and the Clintons, that's pretty middle, that's working with lots of different groups, you know, and is trying to push the state forward. And that's because there was some competition for Mm -hmm. a little while. Mm -hmm. None of us, none of these southern states do well when one party dominates dominates, and then just has to get more extreme to keep people um, invested and create a sense of urgency to go out and vote. I mean, if you have one party politics, mm-hmm. why do people go? Either they stay home or you got to tell them their life's on the line, mm-hmm. right? 
And that is a dangerous dynamic. And Democrats did it for years. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely Republicans that are doing it now. Mm-hmm. And we're best when we have real competition. So just to, to end now, what can we look forward for from you? What are you writing? What oh are you working Lord. on right now? Um, I'm working on, right now I'm working on a piece um, that I'm going to give at the Southern Foodways Conference in Oxford about why the South is still the center of the political universe. It's structurally, the influence it has on primaries. Mm-hmm. Um both in the Democratic and Republican Party, and why it's structured to punch above its weight, why it shouldn't be written off. Um, And I'm working on a longer book project that is in its early stages about why when Phyllis Schlafly showed up and started saying they're going to make the Butcher Babies in government daycare, (laughs) why that caused such a reaction. So the kind of priming of anti-feminism in American culture and where that comes from. I can't wait to read that. That sounds fire. Thank you. <laughs> I can't wait to write it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank the you. The writing so process is like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it very much is. Yeah. Thank you so very much, Dr. Maxwell. I can't I wait for it. this to drop to educate the masses. Oh, I'm sending Lord. it all to all the people I have beef with on social media. <laughs> that sounds good to me. I don't beef on. I I put myself on a political quarantine. I don't talk about politics on social media anymore. Anymore, I anymore. should do that. I I don't do it anymore I as much, it. but I still might reignite the beef. Yeah, because I, I I don't have a political house because my politics is all over the place. So. Yeah, well, I mean, mo- I mean, most Americans. I mean, you have two choices. Yeah. Most people fall. How many choices do you middle. have in Ghana? In Ghana, it's supposed to be more than two. But I probably I've not seen I've not heard of any writing on how the two parties became a two party state in Ghana, right? Mm-hmm. But I think there should be some research on that. Maybe I'll do that in future because I noticed that before the year two thousand, the smaller parties in Ghana had like huge support. They could get up to ten percent votes in elections, and from two thousand and eight till now. It's now almost like a two-party state in Ghana. Mm. The two parties never clock beyond 2%. There are other parties, right? And I think there is a strategy behind the, why the two big I'm parties sure there became. Is. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was, I read history and I noticed that, wait, this third party had like 25% vote and the two parties had to go and see them to Yeah, you have coalition yeah. governing, yeah. And now... There's nothing like that. And I'm mm. wondering how that happened. So Yeah. Well, yeah. we look forward to your article too <laughs> as well, Lady B. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Well, thank, thank you so much. Me. Thank you. This was so amazing. <laughs> thank you for listening to another Revisiting episode of Undisciplined. This episode was hosted by Dr. Karee Banton and my co-host Nenebi Tony. It was produced by Leah Grant. Undisciplined is a collaboration between African and African American Studies at the University of Arkansas and KUAF. It's available every other Wednesday at KUAF.com or on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the African and African American Studies program and the Undisciplined podcast on our Instagram page at U-A-R-K underscore A-A-S-T or visit KUAF.com to listen to this and other episodes. If you like today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or anywhere you listen to your podcast and rate us. <laughs>